Okay, I'm going to say this for the first time today, and it will not be the last time. In fact, it'll, you'll probably hear me say this multiple times. So will you turn in your Bible to the book of Isaiah? Um, let me tell you how this is going to work. Um, some of the ideas that you presented were, um, we want to talk about prophecy. We want to see... We want to learn more about how Jesus and the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the New Testament. Uh, we want to think about um, the end times and things of that nature. And so the way I am trying to make as many of you happy as possible is by studying the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, as you'll see today, will tie together many of those themes. Uh, it is arguably the most significant Messianic book in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to deal with the coming kingdom. We're going to deal with the coming judgment, with all sorts of prophecies about Jesus and the Messiah from his birth to his death to his exaltation to the work of redemption on the cross. Um, I hope your seatbelts are fastened because this is going to be a fascinating journey. And um, I, I'm, I, I, <laughs> I'm cautiously optimistic. This is a long book, and uh, I'm, I'm praying that you will stick with me because this is not going to be, you know, a six-week study. I mean, this is uh, going to be an investment. This is 66 chapters. It is the third longest book in the whole Bible. Uh, and yet, um, like a lot of things in life, the payoff is proportional to the investment that we make. And I think as we dig in and, un and understand Isaiah and work through it, I think that we will find our spiritual hearts encouraged and, and benefited in that way. Now, one of you had a great idea, and I could, not, I could not let this go because I've wanted to do this for many years and have never had a context that s seemed like it was a good time to do it. One of you asked about, can we study difficult passages in the Bible? And so my answer is, yes, we can. So here's what we're going to do. We've got 66 books to work through in Isaiah. What I'm going to do is somewhere between once a quarter or maybe even as much as once a month, we'll, we'll see what the pace is like, I'm going to pick a difficult passage and we're going to set Isaiah aside and we're going to spend that Sunday working through that difficult passage. Okay? So we're going to walk and chew gum at the same time here is what we're going to do. Now, because I love you, there is a page set up on our website, gbcgranberry.com slash difficult. Can you remember that? Difficult. And if you go there, there is a simple form for you to enter the Bible passage that you find difficult and a short little description of what questions you would want asked about that passage. And if you submit that, uh, Lacey, who's not here today, Lacey's going to start compiling a list and I will get that list and that's what I'm going to use for the material on our difficult passages study. So, so you get to contribute the questions, right? This is a, this is a group project. This is not Pastor Keith dictatorship. Yes. Right. One of them doesn't raise any issues, and right. the other one does. Right. So in that case, I'm going to say, read your wife's Bible. Right. And, you know, <laughs> we'll resolve it, right? It's problem, problem solved, right? No, no, I, I, I appreciate, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make light of that, because James is right. Many times difficult passages arise because of how a particular translation team chose to handle a text. So, so yeah, a, a, a precursor to... 
our study is going to be always compare translations, and you'll be surprised how helpful that can be if you're not in the habit of doing so. So I appreciate that. That's a good insight. Okay, so I would love to hear your submission. Um, I have no idea. We might get two. We might get 28. I don't know. And um, I will try to work through as many of those as we can. But uh, this, this is going to be fun. And, and I think it will help us because I don't want to get into such a, a grind in Isaiah that it's like, okay, one more Sunday in Isaiah. I don't want to do that. I want to keep this uh, in a way that's helpful and fresh and new. I don't think we're going to get bored with Isaiah personally, but I think it will help in terms of just the longevity of our study to break it up occasionally to talk about difficult passages. Um, okay? Is everybody happy? Okay, good, good. Um, I hope that this will work well. So um, the working title of our study is Seeing God Through Judgment and Redemption. And uh, as the teacher, I reserve the right to change and alter and update the title at any time without anybody's permission. Um, But as best as I can tell in prepping for this, I think this is at least part of what we're supposed to see. Isaiah is a book that reveals God like few books in the Bible do. Now, of course, all the books in the Bible reveal God, right? The Bible is about God, right? He's the main character, of course. But there's something about Isaiah that we're going to see these snapshots of God that are really unmatched uh, in terms of it, you know, comparison to other places in Scripture. And I, I am eager to know my God more as I know you are as we study this book. Now, here's the crazy thing. One of the main ways we're going to get to know God in the book of Isaiah is by studying something that none of us likes to study. And that is the judgment and discipline of God in the midst of our weakest moments of sinful struggle. Uh, The book of Isaiah is largely about God's judgment. And um, I don't know what you're like when you're reading your Bible, but I'm get, get to that section where it's like the judgment and he's going to do this and he's going to do that. And if they don't repent and this and that, I, I get bogged down by that because it's discouraging, isn't it? It's like, come on, will you repent already? Right. And yet, and yet, oh man, do, do we need the message of this book today? We, we take sin way too casually. And I think because we are so well taught and 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 this side of the cross we have such a, a wonderful view of the gospel which is glorious i think sometimes because we're so encouraged and hopeful in the gospel we forget the depth of the depravity and sin that necessitated the gospel in the first place so i hope that it will do all isaiah will do all those things uh and more so again there's the website uh, if you didn't get that it's up here on the whiteboard um, okay, so, so do that, and um, I'm eager to hear what passages you want to study. But first, but first, we're going to start in Isaiah. Okay. The first thing we do is we need to get our bearing. Um, do you guys want these lights off so you can see that better? Could you do that uh, for us? Thank you. No, no going to sleep here in the front row, okay? I can see you. I know how this works. Okay. We need to get our bearing, and I took the liberty of putting a lot of charts in your set of notes. And um, I hope this will be helpful. This may be review, and if it's review, great. If it's not, um, I I hope that this is time well spent, because 
you can't just parachute into a Bible book and start reading and understand what's going on without understanding something of the context. Now, if it's Romans or if it's the Gospel of John or something that you know you're probably very familiar with, you can do that and you can get away with it. But when if it's a if it's a book like Isaiah or some of the other Old Testament books, I confess that I don't know those books near as well as I know some of the New Testament books, and that may be the situation with you too. So we need to get our bearing first. Before we jump into Isaiah, we need to think about it in terms of where it fits in the overall canon of Scripture and in the history of the Bible. And I hope that this will be very helpful for you, okay? So let's let's go back to spiritual kindergarten, if you don't mind me doing that, and let's just talk about what the Bible is all about, okay? Um, you have a uh, chart there, and this is what is called the Ark of Biblical History. This is from a book called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible by Max Anders. There's a reference there if you want to see it. Uh, how many of you are familiar with that book, 30 Days of Understanding the Bible? Okay. Um, I, I had a friend who encouraged me to read this book the year I became a Christian, brand new Christian. And this book was so helpful. The Bible is intimidating, isn't it? Can we just admit that? The Bible is intimidating. It's long. It's difficult to understand. It's old. It, it's, it's, um, it, the outline is hard. And, and this book helped me to understand what the Bible is all about. So I'd encourage you to do that. But this arc of, of biblical history, there are 12 main sections of biblical history as you go through um, the Bible. So I just want to walk through these, and, and they're on the screen there, so you can fill in your little blanks there. I know it's tiny. I, I had to shrink it down to, to get it all in one page of notes for you. But I uh, hope you brought your, your reading glasses, those of you that, that need those. Um, but, okay, so this first section of biblical history is creation. And that's what we read about in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1. And two, we mainly think of creation, and uh, in, in, in thinking about big chunks of the Bible, we can take that basically and call it the first 11 chapters of Genesis, okay? Creation, and the fall, and um, the flood, and Babel, and all those things. And uh, so that's the first little phase, and you see that uh, Max Anders does a great job of giving us a little picture with uh, how this works. The second phase of biblical history is the patriarch period, and that's where we're thinking about guys like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Basically, Genesis 12 through the end of the book of Genesis, uh, which concludes with the story of Joseph, who was the last of the patriarchs. Uh, what comes after that? I mean, you can look at the thing, but what comes after that? Yeah, the Exodus. Okay, so we got the, the Egyptian temple or uh, uh, pyramids here. And um, we can think of the book of Exodus, but particularly that time in history where the, uh, the Israelites were in captivity and... Um, and God sent Moses and Aaron to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, and that eventually led to them leaving and going into the promised land. Following that, God's given the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, in terms of uh, there's going to be some land and blessing involved in that. And so at that point, as they left Egypt, they were to go and conquer the land, right? And so under the ministry of Joshua... We got these two swords that symbolize the conquest period where Joshua and the Israelites were to go and conquer the land and, and enter the promised land and, and acquire it. Uh, and of course, some things happened along the way that didn't go exactly as planned and the Israelites became disobedient and divided and they were 
uh, arguing and, and thinking about going back and, and getting involved in idolatry. And so God raised up, fifthly, you see the uh, judge's gavel here, in the era of the judges. Uh, who were some of the judges that you remember? Samson, Jephthah, mm-hmm. Deborah, Gideon. Okay, who was the last judge? Samuel. Okay, so we're thinking about the era of the judges, which gets us through the book of Judges into the very beginning of the book of First Samuel. And uh, you'll remember Samuel was the um, the last judge, and what? What event brought the end of the period of the judges? Do you remember? And what, yeah, what, what about the king and Saul? What did the people demand? They demanded a king. They're looking around going, you know, they got a king and they got a king and this other country has a king. We want a king. And they demanded a king from Samuel, who was the last judge. And Samuel said, it's a bad idea. And they persisted and he said, okay. All right, God, God told Samuel, you know what, it's a bad idea, but we're going to give the people what they asked for. So God uh, granted them their wish to have a king, and that ushers in number six, which is the kingdom era. And that's where we need to start paying attention for the purposes of Isaiah. Because the book of Isaiah fits into the time of biblical history known as the kingdom era and the exile. And uh, we'll talk more about the kingdom era here in a minute. And then the exile, of course, is because of the disobedience of the kings of both Israel and Judah, God threatened disciplinary action, and because his people did not repent, he judged both the northern kingdom, which we typically call Israel, or sometimes we call it Samaria, and he also judged the southern kingdom, sometimes called Judah, with the capital city of Jerusalem, and um, brought them both into exile. Where did the northern kingdom go into exile? Do you remember? To the Assyrian Empire. Where did the southern kingdom eventually go into exile? Into Babylon. Okay. So that is where, when we think about where does the book of Isaiah fall, it falls in these two eras of biblical history called the kingdom era and the exile. And just to finish off the chart, because I know some of you have to have those blanks filled in. um, So after that, Remember, under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and um, you know Daniel prophesied about this, that there would be a return, and the people repented, and God brought them back to the land. Nehemiah was in charge of rebuilding the wall. You remember that from his book. You remember Ezra, the prophet, prophesied about the rebuilding of the temple, which happened under a man named Zerubbabel, who rebuilt Solomon's temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And so all that happens in the return era. Well, then the Old Testament ends. You remember that? The Old Testament, just it comes to an abrupt end, and there are 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. The Old Testament ends with a prophecy about Elijah coming again. And the New Testament breaks the silence of the 400 years where God was not speaking, there were no prophets, there was nothing going on in terms of God's immediate revelation, the the breaking of the 400 years of silence is broken with whose ministry starting? John the Baptist, who was the Elijah prophesied to come, right? So that's what, you know, the Old Testament ends with, you know, Elijah's coming, 
And then when John the Baptist shows up, I am the one, of the, uh, the voice crying in the wilderness, right? And that breaks the silence and ushers in a new phase of gospel, of uh, uh, biblical history known as the gospel era, which is our four books in the gospel, the life of Jesus. And then um, once Jesus dies, rises from the dead, goes back to heaven, that ushers in the church, the beginning of the church era. We read that in the book of Acts. And uh, that merges really with the era of missions. So the church and missions are really the same era, but the church was established first in the book of Acts, and then uh, Christians were sent out to evangelize the world in uh, global missions. Okay, So if you're wondering where are we at right now, um, well, we're in a sense, we're still in that church era where missions is the main reason we're here. Okay, so does that help? Just kind of get a context. Okay, if, if, if you're, if maybe you're new. I think most of you are, are have been Christians for a while. Maybe some of you are new to Christianity, but this is so helpful to just think through the Bible um, in terms of you know the, the phases of history that it covers. And so Isaiah, we're thinking about right here in the kingdom and exile. So let's talk about that kingdom era. Um, the, uni- the the kingdom era, we could basically say. Israel demands that God give them a king so they can be like the nations. And so in the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we see the beginning of the kingdom era. Uh, The three main kings that we're thinking of in the kingdom era are Saul, David, and Solomon. Uh, We also understand that what happens under uh, in the kingdom era, uh, what happens is that the kingdom becomes divided. Do you remember this? Now, I don't know how you did in history. I didn't do, do so good in history. But, but you need to get this, or Isaiah will not make any sense. Solomon is this great, wise king, right? And we know his, his biography, that he got involved with foreign women. He had all these wives and concubines from foreign lands. And the text tells us they led his heart astray from the Lord. And the kingdom begins to crumble under Solomon. When Solomon dies, the fact that the kingdom had already began to crumble led to Israel being divided into a northern kingdom ruled by a man named Jeroboam and a southern kingdom, sometimes called Judah, ruled by Rehoboam. So by the time you know Solomon dies, shortly after that, the kingdom divides into two halves because of a civil war. And and here's what you need to understand. Some of the prophetic books in the Bible are ministries directed to the northern kingdom. Some of the prophecies in the Bible are directed to people in the southern kingdom, Judah. And some of them, like Jonah, what's the book of Jonah directed toward? It's not Judah or Israel. Who is it? It's Nineveh. Yeah, it's it's, it's Nineveh, the Assyrians. That's right. So we've we've got uh and then others like Nahum is uh, also directed at Nineveh and, and the Assyrian empire so um the first question you need to ask about any of the prophetic books in the bible is this who is the message for and if you can remember that then you can kind of get some context on what's going to make sense here okay stay with me guys welcome to history class the northern kingdom is judged Conquered by the Assyrians, as you guys correctly mentioned, we can read about that in the book of Second Kings, and taken into captivity. The southern kingdom is later judged, and the kingdom of Judah is conquered by the Babylonians who take them into captivity. Both of those happen, uh, we can read about the historic account of that happening in the book of Second Kings. We can read about it personally in a book like Lamentations, right? What's Lamentations about? 
It's about Jeremiah, and, and what's he writing about? The fall of Jerusalem. He's talking about that southern kingdom called Judah, the capital city of which was Jerusalem itself. He's describing the assault and capturing and burning and destruction of that city. So we've got to get some sort of historical context, and hopefully this will this will help us to do that. So what dates are we thinking of? This kingdom era, right? We're thinking about uh, 1110 to about 723 B.C. And the books of the Bible that are covered in the kingdom era are all those books. So this is a huge, huge section of our Bible. Uh, this is from uh, 30 Days Understanding Bible. David, the greatest king of Israel, is followed by a succession of mostly unrighteous kings, and God eventually judges Israel for their disobedience by sending them into exile. That's the theme of the kingdom era. Okay? So far, so good? Okay. Now, watch this. Can you even read that? I didn't think so. Now, um, I meant to do this. The, the first 20 people to arrive in Sunday school today were supposed to get one of these. I have color copies of this chart. And I don't know if you like charts. Um, I have a... a obsessive-compulsive issue with charts. Um, so these are great in my mind. Um, so this is a chart of the kings and prophets of Israel and Judah. It's a timeline. And um, so I have 20 copies here, and you guys can fight over those in Christian love after class. Okay? But let's let's just... Oh, it's absolutely possible. Yeah, if you email me, I can send it to you. I just I didn't want to exhaust the color printer this morning. So... But let me zoom in on the section that's most relevant for us, and hopefully you can see this, okay? You, you need to get this in terms of context. Now, you're going to look at that, and some of you are going, ah, there's no way I can understand that. You're overwhelmed already. Stay with me, because this chart is your friend. This is your friend. Um, so I won't forget about you guys. You guys can look up there. I'll be right there. Let's just look right here for a minute, okay? So we're starting. You can see the timeline is up at the top. And what we have at the very top there are the kings of Assyria. And where we're typically, what we're interested in is this, the start of this guy right here, Tiglath-Pileser III. And he is the Assyrian king that's in power when the book of Isaiah starts. See, here, here's the biblical books down here. So you can see how these biblical books correspond. Here are the kings of Israel these are the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so we see how those all fit in there. We have convenient years about when they began their rule and concluded their rule. And then here's what's going on in the secular world. Here's the Assyrian kings and the kings of uh, Damascus uh, here that are also relevant to the biblical books, okay? And um, hang on one second. Hi, guys. So we got the timeline right here. These are the Assyrian kings. And this is the guy who's in power when Isaiah starts his ministry. These are the biblical books put alongside a timeline. These are the kings of Israel. These are the kings of Judah. Make sense? Okay. So hopefully that gives us some context about how this works. Um, okay. And so if you want, uh, I've got this. If you want it, um, I could not find a reference for this. Um, in fact, there are other people online that, that post this and they've done research. I don't know who is the original creator, but if you email me, I can send you the file. If you want extra copies, um, Lacey or Nancy would be happy to 
make those uh, for you. Um, okay, but that, that gives us a little bit of help, and I'm sorry I couldn't put that in everybody's notes. Questions on this? Stay there. This is all a means to an end, okay? We've we got to get this history stuff down. Okay, now, so let's talk about the book of Isaiah particularly, okay? The book of Isaiah is a record of the prophet Isaiah's ministry to Judah, the southern kingdom, warning them of a future judgment if they do not repent, but promising them a future hope and kingdom that will come when the servant is revealed. So so you get these, if you want to just think of two themes in the book of Isaiah, you've got this theme of impending judgment. If you do not repent, bad things are coming. But in the midst of that threat, there is this offer of grace and salvation and redemption that will ultimately come through this character that's introduced in the book. And I am so excited to get into the text where this character is introduced. You will read in the book of Isaiah about a man named the servant. Anybody want to take a guess about who that is? It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. But he comes to us in the book of Isaiah as the servant of Yahweh who will come to rescue his people. Do you guys realize how bad our situation really is? I mean, every day, every day we prove in a hundred different ways that we are fallen people and we need a savior. Is that not true? It might be you're feeling grumpy because we haven't seen the sun in like six weeks, right? It may be like that and now we know how people in Seattle feel. It may be a temptation with a certain sin that you continue to struggle with and you know it's wrong and you're fighting. By God's grace, you're making progress, but you just want it to be done. It may be the burden of some trial or suffering. It may be something in your family. It may be in a relationship. It may be regarding your finances. It may be regarding the health of the aging parents that you're caring for. It may be a wayward child that you're praying will repent and trust Jesus, an adult child. I don't know, but every day we see that we need help, don't we? And Isaiah is going to shout from the mountaintops, God has heard our cry for help, and he has initiated a plan of salvation where he dispatches his servant to come and rescue us. And I know you know this, I know it's a happy ending, but can I just remind you, everything will be well because Jesus has come and because he's coming again. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded pretty regularly that that's true. And Isaiah is going to help us to do that. During Isaiah's ministry, he witnesses the northern kingdom captured and taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Okay, So if we just back up to our little timeline. So during Isaiah's ministry... Around 709 B.C., I'll get my exercise here this morning. Around 709 B.C., 
the Assyrians are going to come in as God's instrument of discipline and judgment, and they are going to destroy the northern kingdom. They're going to destroy Galilee and the region of Samaria. They're going to take as many people as they can get together, and they're going to haul them off back to the Assyrian Empire and, and put them into exile. Okay, so Isaiah, you can see, Isaiah is going to witness that. He's in the nation prophesying when that happens. Um, so that's a unique facet of this book is he witnesses that event. And he also witnesses that the very end of Isaiah's ministry, he will witness a thwarted attempt by the Assyrian king Sennacherib to capture Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. I, this is one of my favorite narratives in the story. Do you remember how this happens? Hezekiah is the king. He's a pretty good king. And Sennacherib's coming, and he's tempted to, to give in to the Assyrian king. And, and um, God, uh, I won't totally ruin the story for you, but God intervenes in a miraculous way as Hezekiah prays. And God turns away Sennacherib from coming in and destroying the nation. So it's a really cool story. Um, and then the last thing here I want you to see is that Isaiah foretold of the coming Babylonian captivity. Um, in fact, uh, if you have Isaiah open, flip over to um, chapter 37 of Isaiah. Let me just show you a couple of these. Chapter 37 and verse 9. This is where um, Hezekiah, get the, the, who's the king of Judah, he gets the news about what's going on in the northern kingdom. So in chapter 37, verse 9, when, when he heard them saying concerning Tirakah, the king of Cush, he has come out to fight against you. And when he heard of it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So this is the news coming to Hezekiah, who's the king of the southern kingdom, saying, Have you heard what the Assyrians have done to the northern kingdom? They're coming. You know, this, this, is, this is the blitzkrieg of the ancient Near East. I mean, this is, this is what happened in World War II as territory after territory after territory were taken um, in the name of um, uh, the Nazi regime and, and that part of, uh, of, of uh, world history. So that's what's going on here. And now Hezekiah is being threatened. So we see that Hezekiah, under Isaiah's ministry, witnesses this. Flip down to chapter 39, verse 6. And this is where we see Isaiah telling about the coming of the Babylonian captivity. And this is very sad because this is, um, the book of Isaiah is really divided into two sections, chapter 1 to chapter 39, and then chapter 40 to chapter 66. And this is how the first section of the book concludes, chapter 39, verses 6 and 7. Behold, the days are coming, this is Isaiah telling Hezekiah the king, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Can you imagine as the king of God's nation that the last thing the prophet tells you is this isn't going to end well. That 
the Babylonians are coming because your people are not repenting. Now, there is a happy ending in terms of God's servant that comes. But at least in that is this phase, um, we see things are not well. Now, I'm going to introduce you to some friends that you're going to need to at least be familiar with. There's three groups of kings that you're going to need to know as you read through the book of Isaiah. In fact, I would encourage you as part of your regular Bible reading plan to start reading through the book of Isaiah. If you're going to be in this class, you will benefit greatly by reading through the book of Isaiah. Maybe if you do family worship with your kids at home, you know, maybe a couple nights a week, you can read through Isaiah. Um, even though there are parts that are hard to understand, you need to familiarize yourself with the book. Now, Here's the people you need to know. There's a group of Assyrian rulers you need to know. These are the four Assyrian kings that are um, uh, active during Isaiah's ministry. And those are the dates of their rule, so that you have those for convenience. These are all in your notes. These are the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. When Isaiah starts his ministry, Jeroboam II is in power. When he concludes... Actually... When uh, the, the Assyrians actually destroy Israel, that happens under Hosea, um, leading up to 722 in the captivity of the northern kingdom. And then the third group of people you need to know is the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. Now remember, the southern kingdom is the main recipient of Isaiah's ministry. So we start with a guy named Uzziah, and Hezekiah is really the last king that we read about in the book of Isaiah but a guy named Manasseh comes along after him. Does anybody remember, according to history, what is significant about Manasseh in relation to Mr. Isaiah? He probably, he probably killed him. Okay. Um, hold your place there. Flip over to the book of Hebrews for a moment. I want to show you a reference here that maybe you haven't seen before. And um, we, we can't be totally certain, but most likely in Hebrews chapter 11, we see a reference to Isaiah, according to uh, some historic sources, extra biblical sources, but nonetheless reliable sources. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, you know this chapter as the, uh, sometimes it's called the roll call of faith or the, the Hall of Fame of Faith. You know, it's a recounting of men and women from the Old Testament that were faithful followers of God. And, and of course, the writer of Hebrews is using that as an illustration uh, for the present audience to be faithful and to persevere, knowing that there's this great cloud of witnesses, as he calls them, who have gone before us, giving us an example. Now, now notice this. Um, We'll pick it up in chapter 32 as he is describing the plight of many of these faithful men and women. Uh, in verse 32, what more shall I say for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon? This is Hebrews 11:32, of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Who's that's a reference to? That's Daniel, right? Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty 
in war put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, meaning they threw rocks at them to kill them. They were sawn in two. Do you see that there in verse 37? That is probably a historic reference to how the prophet Isaiah died. Tradition and some historic sources indicate that after many years of faithful ministry with very few results, Isaiah was one of those prophets that preached his heart out his whole life. And he saw basically nothing in terms of the people responding. Jeremiah had a similar ministry of over 40 years. And so his ministry comes to, enclose, comes to a close. Hezekiah was a pretty good king. Manasseh came after him. He was a wicked king. And he captured the prophet, put him in a wooden box, and sought him in two to end his life. We see... Um, we see the plight and, and end of these faithful men of Scripture. So those are the three groups of kings or the kings and rulers that you need to get to know. The Assyrian kings, the kings of Israel, and the kings of Judah. Those are all there for your reference. Now, there is another chart. we got another chart. I told you it was going to be chart heavy today. Um, and this is very important. You guys understand that the books in your Old Testament are not all the same, right? You understand that? Some of them are history books. Some of them are prophetic books. Some of them are, um, you know, poetic books that, that describe, um, you know, worship hymns like the book of Psalms or proverbial literature in the book of Proverbs. So what you have to do is you have to think through the books in your Old Testament in a way that makes chronological sense. Now what this, what this chart does is it puts all the books in your Old Testament together in chronological order. And so we're dividing the books into the poetic books, the historic books, and the prophetic books. That's a, a typical threefold, threefold division of how we can divide the books in the Old Testament. Notice Job, Psalms, Proverbs, these, these poetic, uh, poetical books they are not at all occurring at the same time in history, are they? The book of Job, as you know from uh, my sermon series, started way, way back in the... It, was, it occurred at the time of the patriarchs, way back in the time of, of Genesis. And we also see that the Psalms and the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, those were written during the historic times, stay with me guys, of Chronicles, Second Samuel, and into the book of First Kings. So when you're reading the Psalms and you're going, when did all these get written down? They got written down during those historic times. The historic books, as you can see here, are in chronological order. Genesis being the first book, Nehemiah being the last historic book penned in the Bible. And then the prophetic books, you see the prophets occur during certain times of Old Testament history. Do you see that? Does that make sense? So for example, we're interested in... Isaiah. So what we see here is that the events that the prophet Isaiah talks about occur during the historic time period talked about in 2 Kings and during this actual time period. 
And we also can divide the prophets in terms of who they're writing to. So Hosea and Amos wrote prophecies to Israel, the northern kingdom. Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, and Lamentations are all written to Judah, the southern kingdom. Um, Some prophecies were written to Assyria, like Jonah and Nahum. And one is written to the nation of Edom. That's the book of Obadiah. Does that make sense? And then you have some that occur not during... Uh, this historic time, but a later historic time, like Ezekiel and Daniel, those take place during the exile. Haggai and Zechariah happen during the return. And Malachi is the last book penned uh, once the nation has come back to the land of Israel and they are in the process of rebuilding under Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. Okay? I hope that that's helpful. To, to me, I can't get my brain around a book like Isaiah until I can see how it all fits together. So if that's helpful, great. If it's not, well, figure it out some other way. Okay? But I think that's very helpful. Again, Max Anders from 30 Days Understanding the Bible, very helpful in terms of that. Okay, now, let's talk uniquely about the book of Isaiah. Here's the outline of the book of Isaiah. And I've got it in your chart there. And here's what you mainly need to remember. There's basically two sections. There's prophecies of condemnation and prophecies of comfort. If you can just remember that, the first book is Prophecies of Condemnation. Ta-da! And then the second half is Prophecies of Comfort. Good news, bad news, right? Bad news comes first, followed by the good news. There's a little bit of a historic uh, parenthesis or interlude in the middle of it, but essentially you can think of it as the first 39 books are Pronouncement of Judgment. The the last books, 40 to 66, are Pronouncement of Redemption. Okay? Does that make sense? And we've got all sorts of you know, little things here you can look at there. The time period, 740 to 680 B.C. is the time period covered. And uh, this is from a great little book. How many of you know um, Talk Through the Bible by Wilkinson and Boa? Y- you need to have that book on your shelf. It's probably $10. It's been around for a long time. And uh, what I love about this book is every book in the Bible, he has a little chart like this that just divides each biblical book up so you can get uh, your understanding around it. Okay, so with that in mind, let's talk about Isaiah. What does the prophet Isaiah, what what does his name mean? Does anybody know? What is it? Yes, yes. We we could translate it something like Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. Now, why would God choose a man whose name is Yahweh saves to pen the book of Isaiah. Isn't that amazing? God is so committed to getting his message across that even the guy's name communicates the theme. And wait till you see what God tells Isaiah to name his kids. Right? Um, and this happens in the Bible. The one we probably remember the most is, is Hosea. Remember? Remember the, the prophet Isaiah and go take a wife out of harlotry and well, what's that all about? Just go do it, God says, okay. And they have a baby. And they say, I want you to name your son Lo-Ami. That's kind of a strange name, but you know, Hebrew names are kind of strange. What does it mean? Not my people. Huh! You imagine if God told you you know, you got the, you're on all the blogs, right? And you're like, what am I going to name my kid? You know, and this is great. And, you know, some of us that are older that 
weren't around, you know, when the internet was around, we got baby name books. Remember those, right? And, and God says, no, no, put your books away, put your blogs down. Um, this is what you're going to name your kid. Not my people. Even the name of the sons of some of the prophets were mandated by God to communicate the message that God was trying to get through to the people. And uh, we'll see in a moment that uh, he had Isaiah was married. He had two sons. And um, when we get to those sections, well, you can read ahead if you want to and see their names. One of them, um, you know, I was a school teacher, so I can appreciate this. Where's my school teachers here? You guys, any school teachers here? Okay. When, you know, you get your, your list of your students and one of them has a name that's like this long and it messes everything up, right? You can't fit it on your chart. You can't fit it in your teacher planning. You're trying to remember. Okay. And that's, these, these names are so long, um, but it gets the point across. So, and he was martyred by being sawed in half by King Manasseh as we looked at there. I think this is either Raphael or Michelangelo that did a portrait of the prophet Isaiah. So that's a, that's a portion of it there. Uh, I didn't do so well in art history, but it was one of the major Renaissance painters, uh, Raphael or Michelangelo. I think Raphael actually. <laughs> he did that from a photograph. Yeah. No, I think he was there. I think he, uh, he made him pose, you know, hold the scroll and yeah. Now, what is unique? Let me just give you some fun facts about Isaiah here, okay? The book of Isaiah is the third longest book in the Old Testament. Now, what are the other two? What are the two that are longer? Psalms. This is the one you're going to have trouble with. I bet Rusty might know. Not to put you on the spot, brother, but you might. What is the longest book in the Old Testament according to the Hebrew text? It's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the longest book. Okay, you say Psalms. Psalms has more chapters. But in terms of length of the text, Jeremiah is the longest book. Okay, so Psalms and Jeremiah are longer uh, than then comes Isaiah. Okay, now, and by length, that's a bit length in terms of actual content. Obviously, Isaiah has more chapters, 66. Jeremiah has 40 chapters. Um, but in terms of the actual length of the book, that's true. Now, the book of Isaiah is quoted more than any other book in the New Testament. Did you know that? Over 65 times the biblical writers in the New Testament quote Isaiah more than any other book. So when we talk about the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, when we talk about messianic prophecies, when we talk some of these things you guys wanted to talk about, this is our book because it's quoted more than anybody else is in the New Testament. And Isaiah by name is mentioned over 20 times in the New Testament. And the book of Isaiah contains the most vivid prophecy about the Messiah. What is that? What chapter in Isaiah? 53. Can you, can, let's take a vote here. Can you think of any place else in the Old Testament that is a more vivid, a more specific, a, a more beautiful picture of the Messiah than Isaiah 53? I think that's, that's arguably got to be the top. Um, so we get to talk about that in the book of Isaiah. Now, here's where I wanted to go. That's all, that's all introduction. 
Why do we need to study Isaiah? You're thinking, Keith, this was written 2,700 years ago. Why on earth would we want to look into this? And well, it's in the Bible and it's important. And God says, yeah, I know, I know. But 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 what about the book itself makes this something that we need today? Okay, so I just I just want to bleed on you a little bit here as I've meditated on this book in terms of the things that I am excited about and I know that my heart needs as we think about Isaiah. Number one, we need to study Isaiah because we tend to minimize the seriousness of our idolatry. Stay with me here for a minute. Why did God make us? To fellowship with him in... Worship. Because of sin, how does that go? We're separated from God, and how did it affect our worship? Yeah, we worship the the creature instead of the creator. That's Romans, right? And worship is such a fundamental issue in the Bible that it is not exaggerating to say that every problem in life we experience is ultimately a worship disorder. Because in every problem, every struggle, every sin, every challenge, every temptation, we are tempted to replace God with something else in terms of what we're living for and what we love the most and what we're listening to and where our allegiance is and what we trust and what we value. Now, if that's true, we, we need to see how horribly we have domesticated our sin. We think, well, this is just what everybody struggles with, right? And it's true, it's, it is, it's universal. But the book of Isaiah is a glaring reminder that our sin of replacing God, of worshiping something else other than Him, even if it's something as simple as, I wanted comfort more than I wanted to help my wife with the dishes, something as ordinary as that, God says is a breach of allegiance, a worship failure, an act of idolatry. And I know that in my own heart, I do not hate my sin and my idolatry nearly as much as I ought to hate it. And we're going to spend 39 chapters reminding ourselves that our God is a consuming fire. And His law and instructions are not suggestions. They are demands from the King of Kings who deserves our worship and our life and our everything. And you know why we're not making as much progress in our spiritual life as we probably need to be? Because we do not see our sin for as ugly as it is. We do not hate our sin as much as we should. And we have so minimized our sin that it's just not a big deal. And praise God we have a Savior. Praise God that the, the threats of the law are satisfied in the redemption of Jesus. Praise God that that's true. 
But we should never, ever, ever forget how depraved and lost and wicked and idolatrous and evil we really are by nature. And that's why we need the prophets. The the prophets are like a mirror saying, this is what we're really like. And we say, oh yeah, those wicked Israelites, they just needed to repent. We do the exact same thing. In 21st century modern America, we manufacture our own idols just like the people of God went after the idols and the nations around them. John Calvin, the reformer, said that our nature is a perpetual factory of idols. That's what we do. What fallen people do best is we invent God replacements to worship and serve and love and follow in life. And we need Isaiah to help us to see the seriousness of that idolatry. Secondly, we need Isaiah because we are prone to wander as the Israelites did. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul tells the Corinthians that we need to think about the Old Testament as an example. We need to learn from their example. And um, how many of you resonate with the old hymn? Prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the very God I love. I mean, what what an honest, transparent admission for a person to actually write that down. But there's there's not an honest Christian alive that in his or her heart of hearts doesn't resonate with the truth of that hymn. Are you like this? You could walk out of worship this morning having heard a wonderful sermon by Pastor Terry in Psalm 42, having heard wonderful music that has lifted our hearts, you know, having had wonderful fellowship with one another. You're going to be arguing about where to go to lunch with your kids five minutes after this, this morning is over. That's what happens in my minivan. I don't know what happens in your minivan, but that, that's how it works. What's wrong with us? And praise God that he will finish the work that he started. And he's not going to give up on us. And and he's committed to see this thing through as much as we struggle. And, And Isaiah reminds us, oh, we have got to be careful. These these people heard the voice of Yahweh. They saw his specific hand of judgment destroying the country that they loved. And they still went after other gods. They heard warning after warning after warning after warning. And they wandered anyway. And they're just like us. We need the warnings of this book about wandering. And we need to see and learn from them so that we cannot make some of the same mistakes. Number three, we need to better understand God's plan of salvation unfolded in history. This is interesting. Isaiah is salvation in miniature. And you'll see this as we go along. The book of Isaiah starts in the Old Testament, obviously when it's being written, and it unfolds the plan of God and salvation. Isaiah says, here's your sin, here's what I've asked you to do, here's your judgment, and here's my plan to rescue you, and here's how it's going to happen. Now, now here's the interesting thing. Jesus doesn't show up in the life of Isaiah, does he? How many years after that? We're talking 700 B.C.? 
over 700 years between Isaiah's prophecies and when Jesus shows up. But Isaiah provides the roadmap. And this is why I want you to see this and get excited about this. Isaiah lays out the roadmap of God's plan of salvation, how the Messiah will come, what he will do, how he's going to fix the human problem of sin and set up his glorious kingdom, the future of Israel. All will be well because Jesus is coming. And we get to see God unfold that. It's like Isaiah is like the cliff's notes of God's salvation plan. Do they still have Cliff's Notes? Am I totally dating myself here? Do they still have Cliff's Notes? Oh, they do. Okay, cool. All right, so it's probably like Cliff's blog now, right? Or Cliff's online. Is Cliff, Cliff's dead now, isn't he? Cliff died a long time ago, but anyway. So that's what we're going to see. Isaiah is the Cliff's Notes. I'm glad the, the analogy is still contemporary. Uh, it, is, it is the Cliff Notes of God's unfolding of his plan of salvation. Here's the fourth thing. We need to study Isaiah because we need the confidence of fulfilled prophecy. Be honest. Have you ever wondered if the Bible is really true? You ever talk to somebody that's ever wondered if the Bible is really true? Do you know how one of the ways God convinces us that it's true? He tells us things that are going to happen before they happen. And then they happen. And he says, see, I told you. Only God can do that. And here's the, here's the cool thing. There are so many prophecies in Isaiah. A prophecy being when God tells us about a historic event that's going to happen before it actually happens. Isaiah, this is cool. Isaiah is going to prophesy some things early on in his ministry that happen in the latter half of his ministry. He's going to get to see fulfillment of his own prophecy. That's pretty cool. And what does that do? It gives us a confidence that the scriptures are true. And we need that. People we're ministering to need that. And, and Isaiah, I, I hope if, if, if this goes the way I want it to go, you'll be able to open the book of Isaiah with some of your friends and say, look, this happened years before. Well, you know, a later uh, author came by and added that. No, 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 no. Because in 1942, 1946, 1946, a shepherd boy looking for a lost sheep, discovered some caves on the northwest corner of the Dead Sea in a place called Qumran. And in the, inside those caves, he found some jars. And inside those jars, he found some very, very old scrolls of the Bible. One of which was a 25-foot-long, complete scroll of the book of Isaiah, found in cave one. And that demonstrates the historicity of the book of the prophecies of Isaiah to before some of those prophecies happened. So we know they got written down before some of those prophecies actually happened because the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm that. That's pretty cool too, isn't it? Uh, how many were with me when we went up to the seminary many years ago and they had a, a facsimile copy of that 25-foot scroll? Okay, The real one, I think, is in the Dome of the Rock... Uh, or in the British Museum or somewhere like that. But um, yeah, very cool. Here's another one. We need Isaiah because we get to see the Messiah foretold. We get to see Jesus so clearly. We get to see who he is, why he's coming, his plan, 
uh, foretold and then unfolded in terms of his first coming in his salvation, that's Isaiah 53, and even in terms of his second coming in terms of his setting up his kingdom and the restoration of the people of Israel. So we get to see Jesus like no other Old Testament book reveals him. And finally, there's one last thing. And I just want, I want to demonstrate this to you rather than just tell you. Okay, turn to Isaiah 40, please. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up and do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. His, in his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them into his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens by the span, calculated the dust on the earth, by a measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him whom did he consult and who gave him understanding who taught him in the path of justice and taught him in knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. But behold, he, God, lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not heard, understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its habitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble so to whom then will you liken me that i would be his equal says the holy one lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars the one who leads forth their host by number he calls them all by name and because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power not one of them is ever missing so why then do you say, O Jacob, and assert, assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary 
or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. We need Isaiah because our God is too small. Our view of God is way too small. And we need to behold our God for who He is, the way He's revealed in Isaiah. And you know what, guys? If God is big in your mind, it will transform your life. If God is who He truly really is in your mind, all will go well. All will be okay. And Isaiah helps us to see God for who He really is. So, I'm excited. I'm excited. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this book and we are eager to dive into it. Uh, We need this book today. We need this in our families, in our hearts, in our church. So will You go before us, make this study life-changing for our own hearts, for our families, for our church, for our eagerness to do ministry in our own battle of sin, and for a broken and lost world that does not see the greatness and glory of who you really are. Lord, we want to see you more for who you really are. Will you use this great book to open our eyes and change our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.